I'd move them to the Falkland Islands. Or, 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 maybe, or maybe the Maldives, which are nice and sunny and you can sit on the beach. Uh, so put them there so they're not actually passing laws all the time. You know, we've got far too many laws. We need fewer laws, not many. So let's just uh, plant them somewhere off the planet and uh, have them, uh, we'll, we'll just ignore the, the laws as we wish. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's new podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of research at the ASI. This week, I'm joined by our director, Dr. Eamon Butler, and Tom Harwood, a commentator and journalist at Guido Fawkes. Today, we're going to be discussing returning to the office, moving Parliament to York, and Shamir Begum. But first, Eamon, we got some interesting reviews in that I thought you might like to hear about. So the first one we got was excellent, five-star review, one of the best political pods, strong guests for both left and right. Um, unfortunately, though, the second review wasn't so positive. Bitterly disappointing, one star from David's Penguin Army. I absolutely love my Adam Smith newsletter. I mean, I think he's talking about your fantastic newsletter that everyone should subscribe to. But this is awful centrist tosh. I can't believe that Eamon Butler signed off on this. Eamon, how did you sign off on this? What were you thinking? I think I was too busy um, doing my newsletter. It takes a lot of time, you know, to think up all these witticisms. And to report on everything that we've been doing is so much. Well, let's let's get started. So on Friday, Boris Johnson outlined the next steps to return to significant normality, including withdrawing guidelines that say public transport must only be used for essential journeys, resetting light performances and stadium ordinances in autumn, as well as empowering local governments to impose regional lockdowns. But most controversially, the government will be scrapping work from home if you can advice from August one. So, Tom, do you think this is the right time to be getting rid of that guidance, or, or do you side with um, Patrick Valance, the chief scientific officer, who said there was absolutely no reason to change the advice? Yeah, I think it makes sense for a couple of reasons. I mean, firstly, we're in August. Uh, it's a time when lots of people will be having staycations or even going abroad to one of the uh, countries that we have um, uh, travel corridors with. So it, it's, it's likely to be a phased reintroduction uh, coming in at this time. But also, I think it's become very, very clear that there are a lot of disadvantages to um, working at home. And, and, and obviously, this this order isn't this 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 new uh, liberalisation of these rules aren't saying that everyone has to come into work. It's giving uh, employers the freedom to, to say, uh, yes, we would like our employees to come into work. Many employers, I'm sure, will say, no, please uh, work at home. I, I, I know that, for example, the civil service um, is, is not expecting to bring people back until at least next year in any significant numbers. Um, so different uh, companies will take this advice in different ways, but giving employers the freedom to uh, be able to say, actually, we'd prefer you guys in the office, you might be more productive this way. And actually, quite a lot of employees are, are really keen to get back into sort of that structure that can, I think, in many ways be more productive. I think it's a useful relaxation that uh, is coming in at the right time. Well, let's hopefully those civil servants never get back to work and leave us all alone, Eamon. I was just going to say that, yes, I mean, you know, the longer they stay off, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think, yeah, okay, right, yeah, I'd love to, people to go back to work, but I think it's not going to make a blind bit of business, a difference, this uh, this advice, because I think people do things at their own rate. I mean, we, we locked ourselves down before the government did, 
and uh, we, we, we started coming out of it before the government let us come out of it. And I think exactly the same will happen with offices. If people want to go into offices, they will go into offices. And if they've got good reason to go into an office, they will do. And if they don't, then they won't. So I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, and no, I think there was a, there's a good recent study that was comparing American states that found that the vast reduction in the foot traffic across retail, across entertainment, across hotels was due to self-regulation, not due to the lockout rules themselves. Mm. I mean, as as uh, my friends will know, I'm a lot more sympathetic to the idea of work from home. Um, I think in terms of the individuals being able to work from home, there's some pretty good evidence a, that a lot of people are enjoying it. There's something like over 90% of people want greater workplace flexibility in the future. About one third expect to work from home, according to a recent survey in the UK. Um, although this does, of course, have huge effects um, on the physical locations of our city centres that in some ways I think are, are, are going to be permanent, Eamon, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, you've got uh, all of these, uh, well, uh, pubs, uh, wine bars, uh, sandwich shops, uh, and all the rest of it, and just things that people do at lunchtime or after work. And if people aren't coming into the office, that's really bad news for them. And it, okay, it may be good news for um, for businesses in in other, you know, dormitory uh, towns and so on. But uh, in in our big cities, it's really bad news. So it will be a major kind of structural change. And when structural change happens, it takes time for everybody to get, well, firstly, to, to work out what's happening and secondly, to respond to it and, and to create the new businesses you need to, to respond to that. So that's, a, that's, that's an economic hit. There's no question about it. I think that this conversation is underestimating the number of people that do actually quite want to go into work, that the, 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 the social value in being around people and being in a room where you can sort of buzz ideas off one another. I mean, I ended up um, in, in lockdown. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the office now. We have been in the office for a couple of weeks at Guido. Um, but Very rebellious when... at Guido. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's sort of the opposite of authority, I suppose, uh, the, the opposite of the anti-authoritarian authoritarian attitude we should be taking. Um, but no, I mean, we find it more productive to be in the same workspace, to be able to talk to uh, each other, to be able to bash out ideas without the hiccups of uh, mobile technology. But I found myself um, a, a few weeks ago before we were in the office doing this sort of reverse commute, where once I finished working for the day in my flat, I'd then commute into central London to meet up at um, the pubs that were allowed to open and, and see friends and stuff. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad, Tom. You were supporting the the businesses that need the, that that funding and need that money right now. Absolutely, doing my patriotic duty by getting absolutely sloshed. Surely, there's some huge benefits in terms of productivity, both from reducing the time it takes people to commute, because that saves a lot of people time during the day. But also, it obviously depends on your particular circumstances at home. But there's evidence that if you're in an open office space, I think your office is quite small. There's a few people there. But if you're in a big open office space, it doesn't necessarily mean you're that productive, you're that undistracted, and that that can sometimes be not only quite extensive for businesses because they have to spend a lot of money on commercial real estate, but also not particularly good for people's welfare and, and well-being or even according to some evidence of open office spaces that they reduce collaboration because people are too scared to speak up. So I'm not sure that the story is as, as good for being physically in the office always. I, I mean, I, I think there's, there's so much which you can do uh, face-to-face and you can't actually do even, even on a Zoom call or, or something like that. Uh, and it's just the, the little asides. And, and, and I, th- I think in particular, I'm thinking about people who are just joining a business and they're not quite sure how things work and where everything is and what they need. And it's just so easy to ask your colleagues, oh, can you, can you tell me how that works? 
Whereas uh, to do that online, you know, it's a major, major <laughs> issue. You've got to log in and do all this stuff. And uh, I, I, I just think it's going to, going to be devastating for the, the, the upcoming generation, if you like, of people just trying to join a, join a business. I mean, it, it's really problematic. Tommy, are you at all worried that businesses aren't going to send people back into the office like you you want because they'll be worried about their potential legal liabilities, uh, their kind of health and safety requirements that businesses have? Great cost, of course. Well, yeah, for the COVID the COVID secure side, it's it's going to be expensive to redo workspaces. It might just be easier for them. A lot of businesses to say don't come back in. Yeah, I think there's going to be a massive variation. I mean, some businesses will really want their people to come in. I think actually anecdotally amongst people that I know, lots of people have been raring to get back into work because people do like a bit of structure to their lives. I mean, it it can be a bit... delirious making really stat uh, at home all day probably going over to the fridge far too often uh, maybe not getting out of bed until far later than you probably should you know there's there's all these sorts of things that actually in terms of getting that routine traveling to work having a place where you do work that has something that, that, that there's an element there that's good for mental health that's good for productivity and yes it will be different for everyone some people will have the good fortune to have a study where they live um, not everyone has that I think people who live uh, who are perhaps perhaps younger, who live in smaller flats, who um, don't have all the amenities that people who um, live with, for example, their families do. Um, I think it's going to be massively different for different kinds of people, which again is why I think it's quite good that there isn't this blanket order from the government to say everyone must do this or everyone must do that. Giving firms the individual opportunity to uh, decide the policies that work for them, I think is the most useful, useful thing in this circumstance. Yeah, and in some ways, I, I say this is a bit of a victory for human freedom, which is that this greater understanding of flexibility could be quite good. So a lot of people are going to go back into the office, but also having that choice, let's say if you are recently had a child, you want the opportunity to have a little bit more flexibility to come in slightly less, or you want to spend a few days a week working from home. Can you can you see yourself doing that a bit more? Do you, do you think you're going to spend maybe one day a week working from home where you suspend that, or are you 100% back into the office permanently, never, go, never leaving again? See, I think I, I might quite like to spend, uh, you know, each Friday at home. I know this is very, very common in the civil service um, where they have this sort of flexible working. And I know um, anecdotally, a, a friend of mine has, has, has an anecdote about um, one of her colleagues um, who works uh, in one of, the, one of the civil service departments where um, she was going up to ask the boss to have Friday working from home. But accidentally, she said, could I have Friday off, please? Um, because there is that sort of uh, element where people do think... Think, oh, I'm not going to do quite so much work. You know, if you're if you're working from home, it is a different atmosphere, especially if you sort of take off that time. And so, for workplaces that do have this sort of flexible working to a much greater degree, I think there is an element of people who sort of push the boundaries there. Yeah, maybe it can't always be Fridays for everyone, can it? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, I remember when the city of London, uh, the, the three martini lunch was was de rigueur, and I don't think anybody did any work in the afternoons at all. <laughs> that sounds like a new policy for the ASI, Amy. What can't we? Uh... <laughs> no, no. Afternoons are cancelled. Um, the other interesting part uh, for Boris' announcement, uh, just to move on a little bit, is this. Um, sense in which national lockdowns are something of the past. We saw this in his Sunday Telegraph interview that he described uh, national lockdown as the nuclear deterrent, something you want to have on background but you never actually want to use. And this new empowerment of uh, councils and, and local governments to do more localised lockdowns. Um, do, do we think that's a, a welcome change, Eamon? 
Well, I, I'm against uh, giving powers to local authorities for almost anything because they usually mess it up. Um, but I, <laughs> I think, yes, I'm, I'm very much against uh, lockdowns um, uh, by, by order. I mean, I think the, the great British public know when they need to do something and know when they don't. Uh, and so we're, it's probably better to leave it to them. And maybe, who knows, the Swedes may have got it right because, uh, you know, there, there's new evidence about the number of um, people who have medical conditions that aren't getting uh, treated uh, because of uh, the problems in the NHS and all the rest of it. Um, so, and and uh, in every, uh, when you take a financial hit, as, as we have done, and, and as a lockdown causes, then you get more suicides, depression, and all the rest of it, you know, in the tens of thousands. So I think by the time you add up the numbers, uh, I'm not sure that a lockdown even saves lives, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, the Telegraph was claiming today that there's something like 200,000 extra deaths as a result of lockdown, including suicides and missed surgeries and undetected cancers. Personally, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to what the government did in March, considering the extent of spread in the community, the dangerousness of this novel virus, the fact that our systems weren't prepared for it. But I think there's been, to some extent, a surprising extent of which people really don't want the lockdown to ever be over. Maybe people were enjoying themselves a little bit too much at home and not really getting any work done. Um, Tom, where, where are you at the moment in terms of your thinking about this kind of national lockdown, local lockdown future ahead of us? Well, just on that Telegraph splash, I find that I found that a bit extraordinary because it was based on the same research. It said, you know, over over sort of 10 years, you'll have 200,000 deaths. Well, sure. But that um, that same body of research said that with no lockdown, there'd be 600,000 deaths um, through COVID alone. Uh, and, and, and while we're looking at sort of, you know, the, the 50 odd thousand death toll we've had in the last few months in this country, that's only from about 6% of the country having had coronavirus. If it had spread much further through the country, I think we would have seen a, uh, a much worse death toll. And, and that's someone who really dislikes um, lockdowns. I've, I've, I have very reluctantly come to the opinion that it was the right thing to do and that actually perhaps we should have done it a bit earlier. Um, and I, 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 I'm very annoyed with myself that I, I believe this now because it's, it, comes, it goes against just about every sort of philosophical principle I have. But ultimately, in, in moments of sort of national crisis, you do do extraordinary things. It's the same as, you know, wartime. Technically, libertarians should oppose blackouts, but I think they were probably the right thing to do during the blitz i think that's a that's a probably a good analogy in terms of the encroachment on freedom but the but the announcement this week in terms of the localized lockdown and empowering um, local authorities to do that. Um, localized lockdowns have been government policy for um, as, as soon as they started lifting the lockdown. This isn't a new thing. Um, hospitals, individual schools, lots of these things have had local lockdowns. The difference is now the power to uh, carry out those lockdowns is with local politicians. And I think a lot of this is a response to what happened in Leicester, where you had um, the mayor of Leicester getting into a bit of a fight with the government, a war of words, saying that... Uh, hang on, why are you imposing this on us? So I think in many ways, giving the power to local authorities is a bit more of a political decision than one based on health. It's it's making sure that um, local communities don't blame the government when all these people tell them to lock down, that that's on their own local politicians. Well, I, I, you know, I don't believe any of the figures at all. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think we just, we don't know how we're calculating these figures. And uh, the figures that are cited in Telegraph and other places and was cited right at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, uh, 
are based on theoretical models, which may or may not be right. You, you tweak a few variables and you get a completely different answer. So we just don't know. And, it, and it, as you say, uh, Matt, it's a, it's a novel disease. We're not used to it. We don't quite know how it operates. We're beginning to learn. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, I mean, Tom's absolutely right that, uh, you know, I believe in a, a, a liberal agenda. I think people should be free to run their own lives. In an emergency, you do something different. That is true, yes. And, and in an emergency, you, you, you might well lock down or you know, put up your blackout curtains or whatever it is. Um, so, yes, I mean, uh, liber- liberalism, libertarianism is really for normal times, not necessarily abnormal times. So I, I, I do see that point. The Parliament has written a letter proposing a relocation of Parliament to York while Westminster is being restored. This comes after sniffing discussion led by Cabinet Secretary Michael Gove about how governing elites are unrepresentative of the rest of the country. Um, But Tom, just to start, does Parliament really need a £4 billion restoration at this time? Is that something that's really affordable and, and a worthwhile public expense? I mean, I think it would be more expensive to not do the restoration. This is a building that I think the general public have a have an idea of how falling down it is, but not quite the true extent of it. There are about 12 fires a year in Parliament. There are uh, about a dozen people who are employed full time to just walk around the building to look out for fires. Like that's their full job. Um, there, there's there's falling masonry that closed entrances just uh, just a couple of weeks ago where um, half the building you couldn't get in or out of because it's literally falling to bits. I mean, the extent of disrepair of this building is vast and almost undescribable. I mean, it's it's a building that most people, um, that, that even the people that are in charge of it don't know all the ins and outs. It was only last month or a couple of months ago that they found a new room in Parliament that they never knew had existed for hundreds of years. Um, this is a building that really requires significant care and attention, or as uh, Parliament describes it, restoration and renewal. So this £4 billion um, doing it now is something that is a preventative amount of money to spend. And if it, if the whole palace ends up like Notre Dame, it will cost a hell of a lot more than £4 billion to fix it all. So I think this is something that that, that we are looking at with increasing urgency. It's been delayed again and again, hasn't it? It has been, because of course, if you're a member of parliament sitting in that building, you don't want to go and sit in some kind of modern chamber um, and and escape all the majesty of the building. But if you want to preserve that majesty for generations to come, you've got to be a little bit selfless and be willing to have the sweeping restoration happen now, rather than the tinkering that simply is is going on right now and is not up to scratch. The, The Palace of Westminster is a building in which it's impossible to have an original thought the whole place is just ancient and old and awful, <laughs> and it's completely unsuited to modern modern government. And here's a, it's another figure I don't believe either. This four billion quid. Remember that uh, when the House of uh, Houses of Parliament were built, they were three times over budget and twenty four years late. And I'm sure that this restoration will be no different. It's a, it's a public project. It's, it's going to be you far more than that. Over time, over budget, over and over again. Uh, and I think there's, there's almost never been a public project on time. But about this kind of new question about where Parliament should go. Well, not really a new question, but uh, it's the, the current idea is to move to Richmond House just up in Whitehall. Um, I mean, what's your view on moving up to York instead? I'd move them to the Falkland Islands. 
or maybe or maybe the Maldives, which are nice and sunny, and you can sit on the beach. Uh, so put them there, so they're not actually passing laws all the time. You know, we've got far too many laws. We need fewer laws, not many. So let's just uh, plant them somewhere off the planet and uh, have them. Uh, we'll we'll just ignore the the laws as we wish. Tom, is it going to happen? Is is Parliament actually going to go up to York, or is this just more nonsense from a very symbolically led government? I think this is a bit of posturing from the government, because ultimately it's not the government's decision where Parliament is based. It's Parliament's decision. And we saw this just yesterday, um, yesterday evening, um, where or I, sh- I should say um, Sunday evening. I'm not sure when this podcast is going out. Um, from the uh, Lord Speaker emailing um, all of the peers, whereby he said, hang on, the government might be pontificating about this in the pages of the Sunday Times, but this doesn't mean that they have any control at all over where we sit. It's a matter for Parliament, and ultimately the uh, government doesn't have a majority in the House of Lords, far from it. Um, It's unlikely that this is something that's ever going to happen, and it seems like it's a useful bit of pontificating on the government side, because they're able to sort of present this narrative of, oh, we're of the people, we want to move Parliament out to the real country. Incidentally, I'm not sure how much of the real country the centre of York is. It's a metropolitan university city, Labour voting. I mean, it voted Remain. Like, it's not particularly... Um, representative of that real country narrative that uh, the government keeps on talking about. Um, but ultimately, this is just, to, I think, in in my view, it's to be able to have that argument, um, be defeated by Parliament again, not have to actually move um, everything 200 odd miles north, um, but being able to sound like they wanted to uh, could be electorally useful. Yeah, it sounds very much like kind of Boris Island or, or the Boris Garden Bridge doesn't seem to be something that's going to happen in reality. But I think it is worth unpacking to what extent moving parts of parliament or government around the country actually achieves the goal of making them more representative. Because I think there's this risk that we've seen with previous efforts to, say, move Channel 4 to Leeds or the BBC up to Salford or particular tax collecting authorities around the country, that you actually don't make them any more representative. You just create a bubble. And that bubble happens to be highly, quite highly paid. So it takes uh, away from the local labour market because local businesses can't afford to, to pay the same as the civil service wages or the publicly funded wages. Um, and at the same time, you lose a lot of expertise, you add a lot of costs um, in terms of going, let's say, in this case, back and forth from York. What's what's your view on, on this reallocating around the country element of it, Eamon? Does that work? What's your take no i i mean if you say right well let's move it to york then people in birmingham will say well why, why don't you move it here or people in liverpool will say it should be here um so there's no logical place to put it outside london except possibly well i don't know somewhere that's the geographical center of the country wherever that is might make sense but that's probably got no infrastructure so london is is so well connected to everywhere that uh, most members of parliament can get there and if you start saying right well uh, we're going to have it in york then people up in scotland say well we can't actually get there very easily people in northern ireland are going to say we can't really get there very easily and uh, then, so what do you end up with? You end up with, you've still got a parliament in White, in Westminster and you've got more institutions in, in York or Derby or wherever it happens to be. So you'll actually just get mul- a multiplication of, of government. It's just, it's just like devolution. You know, we don't really need um, a parliament to sit in, in Edinburgh or in, in Cardiff. That could could have been done by having the grand committees, the, the Scottish and the Welsh uh, MPs, 
meeting together in um, in Westminster and and doing their UK business for the rest of the week. Uh, so I think we'll just, we'll, we would just end up with a multiplication of government rather than a um, rather than it becoming sort of nearer to the people and more relevant. I, I mean, I'm personally a little bit more sympathetic of the, the idea of decentralising state responsibility to more local levels and doing that at the same time as decentralising fiscal responsibility. Because I think the key issue in the UK is that you created these local politicians in, in Edinburgh and Northern Ireland or in Wales, but they're not really accountable because they're largely funded out of Westminster. They don't have the local tax raising capacity. Uh, and there is kind of broad evidence that you need um, in order to get more successfully delivered local services, decentralization isn't necessarily a bad idea, but if we're just replicating and expanding the size of government unnecessarily, I think it's quite problematic. Yeah, yeah it's, it's chicken and egg. I mean, we had this uh, conversation over the years with local government, and, and you know, my view is that local government should take on more of the responsibility. After all, you know, they get told by Westminster what to do and then they don't get enough funds to do it. So they should actually raise their own funds and decide what they're doing, just as they do in, in most other countries in the world. But of course, the argument is always, oh, well, you know, we all know that local councillors are incompetent. We can't trust them with this. Well, <laughs> you know, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, I don't think that just shifting around the where the central government is will make the central government any more accountable or reality based. I'm not sure the logic here, especially when it's uh, moving somewhere like York, which is pretty full in terms of the historic city centre, you'd probably have to build a whole new conurbation as sort of an annex to the city. Um, And that would be enormously expensive to set up and run. And then it would just be full of the same people that were um, down in London anyway. I mean, I know that from personal experience, um, trotting up to Salford um, and, and, and staying in a hotel there to pop on the BBC in the morning and then coming back down. That's mostly what happens. It's it's just, just the fact that a bit of the BBC is based in a different part of the country doesn't really diversify the people who are on it or, or running it. Um, and, and similarly, I think there was this big drive under Tony Blair to move out so many parts of the civil service into different parts of the country, you know, whack off the, po- the, the passport office up, up into the north, um, Put put bits of the Home Office out in in the Midlands. You know, I mean, did, did it really do anything other than probably enrich uh, train companies to a great extent? I mean, one of the reasons why York has been floated in this instance is it's got very good train connections to London. Now that that's uh, that sort of almost seems to defeat the point because it's just going to mean the same London people are zipping up and down. Um, the East Coast mainline. So it, it, it's, it's a very peculiar thing to do. I think the, the simple option here is to do exactly what Canada has done in terms of it's restoring its House of Commons right now. They've just popped an exact replica of their old House of Commons in a building just across um, Parliament Square. Um, and they're operating in that for five years while the restoration is done. That seems to be the only thing we can do. I don't want a new building project to design probably some awfully hideous modern art um ridiculously over expensive new chamber for uh, parliament to be based somewhere else in the country i mean thinking about how much it would cost to restore uh, the palace of westminster i mean just next to the palace there's a building called portcullis house which i think was the most expensive building in london when it was built per square foot um because it, it, it and, and, and that's a very modern building i mean the idea that uh, just building something new would uh, save money or be revitalizing in any way shape or form i think is entirely erroneous yes and and, and the thing is with these things that you you get the problem it's like the uh, european parliament 
upping sticks every six months uh, to move from uh, Brussels to, to Strasbourg because mm. everybody wanted to have the parliament. And I think we would have exactly the same thing. Everybody would want to have the parliament and therefore you did, it, would, it would end up moving from one place to another. And the same, I think, with the civil service. that I, I saw this when I was working on Capitol Hill many, many years ago. And every member of Congress wants to get uh, a government office in, in their district because it brings in jobs and cash and all, and all the rest of it. So they're all just vying uh, to, to have these... these uh, uh, outfits in their own district, and there may be no common sense for doing that at all. It just becomes a political horse trading. Yeah, and I think what's kind of been lost here as well is the fact that if you move Parliament up to North, but you leave most of the civil service in London, it, it doesn't actually uh, enable Parliament to do what they're meant to do, which is to hold the executive to account if they're so physically disconnected from as much as we might dislike it, the, the civil service or what they're doing, it's it's just going to be factually much harder in the end, surely. Well, Bo- Boris Island has got something going for it. If we could just put them all on Boris Island and then, you know, just have water surrounding it and preferably <laughs> no bridges, then they can't do us too much harm. Yeah, I mean, this was the whole problem that I, we found in Australia creating Canberra, is that if you if you separate them out, you don't make them any more representative either. You just uh, create your own your own separate bubble somewhere else. I guess it's the same issue with Washington, D.C. as well. Um, there's no way to win here in the end. Last week, an appeal court ruled that Shamir Mbagan, who joined Islamic State in Syria at age 15, can return to UK to fight the decision to strip her of her citizenship. The Home Office will reportedly appeal the decision. Is Begum deserving of our sympathy? I think that far too often in this debate, we are hearing uh, an almost infantilised picture of this woman being painted by so many of the same people who are so quick to say that 16-year-olds should have the right to vote in this country. I think that ultimately there is a, a high degree of criminal responsibility here. I think the age of criminal responsibility in this country is 10 years old. Um, this is a woman who went out to Syria uh, more than half a decade ago um, and, and is very much by almost any system of governance now considered to be a cognizant adult woman. By all accounts, she travelled round the nascent Islamic State, um, stayed with uh, different families. I think there's there's uh, one allegation that she helped sew uh, vests that could be planted with bombs. This is not some innocent little child who was swept away in in um, in an act of sort of kidnap, as it some, somehow uh, sometimes tried to be presented as. This is someone who took, who, who was inspired by and enthusiastically joined a death cult uh, with a view to destroying Western civilization and killing British people. And I've seen interviews with her um, in that camp in, in Syria now, um, where she where she sort of speaks to, uh, I think it was ITV News who went out there and, and, and filmed her. And she didn't seem to have an ounce of contrition. She didn't yeah. seem at all to be um, sorry uh, for a single thing that she had done. And, and I don't think that, that she has changed her mind one iota. It just seems to be that now ISIS is losing. She thinks that it would be good to come back home. 
Yeah, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. I was I was having a look at the Guardian letters page for my sins about her and the final comment uh, that they had in, the final letter they had in, uh, made the point, and I quote, she was just searching to engage with a complex world. Now, I know a lot of a lot of young people do some pretty crazy things when searching to engage with a complex world, but I think they don't usually go see videos of people being headed and then say, yes, that's the kind of society I want to join. Uh, leave Britain, travel across the world, join what is a terrorist organization that raped and enslaved non-Muslims that uh, threw homosexuals off rooftops and tortured children. Uh, and then even to this day, the fact you're right, she doesn't really show that much remorse. She's not a sympathetic character. Uh, she's just someone who served in the morality police, reportedly enforcing the strict dress codes. Um, as you were saying, she stitched suicide bombs to explosive vests, and that was so that they couldn't be taken out, so that so no one could change their mind if they, they decided, in fact, they didn't want to take their own life. She also even tried to recruit other young women to join and justified the Manchester Arena atrocity. Uh, so I just don't see in what world this is uh, somebody we should have much sympathy for. But on the other hand, what do we do about her now? She's obviously ended up on the wrong side of this war from, from her perspective. Um, and, and how do we handle that? She's a British citizen, or at least she was. Oh, she was. Uh, yeah, well, you know, let me be the squishy liberal here. Um, you know, I think everybody's got their opinions, and some are, oh, she was misled, and others are, she's a terrorist, for goodness sake. Uh, and uh, we've all got our opinions, and I think that these opinions need to be, if, if we're going to do anything, we should, we should hear those opinions in a, a, a court of justice. And I would actually love her to be to face British justice, because I think she, if she is uh, indeed guilty of all of these things that you said, uh, then I think the British justice will know what to do. But uh, I think something like, but she's in an impossible position. If you're stripped of your British citizenship, which uh, you know a, a government seems to be able to do willy-nilly without very much thought. I mean, this is a major, major punishment because you become stateless and then you have no uh, government to support you and all the rest of it. So, uh, and how can you get your case heard when you are in a, a refugee camp in, in Syria with no running water and probably not electricity or anything like that? You, you cannot possibly mount a fight back against uh, against that move. So that, I think, is what she or her lawyers are trying, trying to do. On the other hand, there are many, many other people in that same situation. And so if you said yes to her, it would be very difficult to, um, to refuse the others. But uh, uh, generally speaking, I think that people ought to be able to have the right to justice, no matter how... What yeah, I think, I think that's right, especially if someone we dislike. The reason why... We are a civilized society, not barbaric, is that we choose to put people through a proper process where we prove their guilt rather than uh, just kind of throwing them out. Although a Sky News poll, of course, found that 65% of people uh, would be happy to see her lose her citizenship and become stateless. Tom, are those people right? Is that something we should be doing? Yeah, I think this is not a normal case. This isn't someone who um, has exclusively British citizenship. Of course, her um, father comes from Bangladesh. There's a legal argument there that um, Sajid Javid's original original decision was based on. Um, and there are two cases here when we're talking about um, British justice. Uh, number one is her perfect uh, right to appeal the citizenship decision, and number two is the uh, the, the the justice she faces for joining uh, the Islamic State death cult. And the problem here 
is that if we were to bring Shemima back to the UK before that first judgment had been made, the outcome of it would be presupposed because she wouldn't be allowed to leave in any sense. And this is what Sajid Javid was staying, saying in his statement, why um, the decision of, uh, of the Court of Appeal, which, I, which is now being taken um, to, to a higher court, um, why that was so wrong in his view is that until the citizenship question has been settled, she should not come back to this country because Otherwise, it can't. Because otherwise, you're, you, you, there is no sort of question over it. Once she's back in, she can't be kicked out again, no matter what. So, if we want to have almost a fair trial and a fair right of appeal and hearing both sides without that outcome being presupposed, she must have that right of appeal via Skype or via Zoom. I mean, we're conducting this interview now, all sitting in uh, different offices uh, down a down a um, computer line. Um, why can't that happen in the justice system as well? It seems like this is exactly what should be happening. And of course, she has a right to appeal, but she doesn't have to come back to this country for that. But Tom, you've already said how much easier it is to communicate with fellow workers if you're all in the same office. And the same is true of clients and lawyers. They have to see their lawyers and uh, you can't expect lawyers to fly out to Syria, even if they were allowed in, uh, to uh, advise it. It just, it just wouldn't work. So there is a case, I think, uh, for having her back to, to fight. Well, I'm not saying it's going to be super easy, but of course, you've got to be able to, in these sort of circumstances, um, make these sort of uh, provisions because this is an extraordinary case and it is a case the outcome of which might well inspire other uh, people in this country to think oh right if I'm if I'm a teenager with a flight of fancy to go off and, and, and kill some uh, British people or engage in some of the horrific practices um, that, that went on under Islamic State then it's almost like they have a free pass to do so because they know they can come back to this country, maybe get a light slap on the wrist and then um, go on their way. I think this is a terrible sort of message that we'll be sending and we have to be stronger in these high profile cases. Yes, yes. I, I, but I, I worry about uh, people who, you know, for, forget the, this individual, but think about uh, some other teenager who does indeed go abroad and gets sucked into something which they, they don't really understand. And then suddenly the British government decides that it doesn't like them very much and strips them of their citizenship. Well, then they're on their own, and it, it may or may not be of their own making and, and fault. And I, I, I think stripping somebody of their citizenship is, is a really big step. And I don't think we should generally. No, I don't, I don't think we should generally not either. But let's not let's be real here. Shemima is someone who stripped herself of her British citizenship when she signed up to a pretend country, when she signed up and declared herself as a citizen of Islamic State. Um, it's obviously illegal territory because that's not a recognition. That's not a recognised country, but she certainly recognised it as a country, and she she would have uh, absolutely, in doing that action, in declaring war on the British state, I think that to to a, a large extent she herself revoked her to citizenship. Look, I think it's probably important to remember that actually under international law, you, the UK government actually can't withdraw someone from their citizenship. You can't leave someone stateless. And I think that's very much for the reasons Eamon's saying, that without a state and any kind of citizenship, you're in a pretty 
dire position. And from a human rights perspective, we don't think you can do that. Now, the debate specifically which will come up in this court case is whether or not her Bangladeshi citizenship is something she can act on. And that, that'll be a matter for the courts. The Bangladesh government uh, are refusing to take her and refusing to recognize that. Ultimately, though, I actually think the UK almost has a responsibility here to ensure that she does get justice and when that, what the justice means is is really going away for a long period of time. Um, and if that's a problem, then I, I think we need to have a look at the existing legal framework that might make it difficult to do that. Because I think a lot of the concern here is, oh, these people come back, and there's about 150 of them, and they come back to the UK, have committed these atrocious crimes, we don't really have any proof of it. Um, I think there are ways around that, though. I mean, Australia made an, a decision relatively early on uh, to make it criminal to physically go to certain locations. And therefore, if you had taken that step of going to ISIS, you had broken Australian law and, and you were treated accordingly if you tried to come back to Australia. Uh, notably, that did catch someone who was when fought, fought for the Kurds, so not a perfect situation. Uh, the Henry Jackson Society, I think, have made a very strong argument for updating treason laws, um, which as a virtue of her dedicating herself, as you're saying, Tom, to a foreign power, to uh, someone who had the intention of murderously killing British citizens and, and b- being anti-Western values, that you could, uh, a treason law would be an appropriate way to send her to jail. I just, I, I think that Eamon's fundamentally right, that we, we can't just be leaving someone there in a refugee camp when they are a British citizen and just like any other citizen of a country should have a right to the normal processes of, of that citizenship. Um, and if you don't, if you allow this arbitrariness, and this is actually something um, which I thought was quite interesting, that Boris followed up on by saying that he wants to limit the power of judicial review, um, whether or not we we knew really what that meant or, or where that was going to go, and whether or not we just want to whether that leaves the executive quite empowered to make these what could be considered arbitrary decisions about taking away people's citizenships, even if it's someone as terrible as Begum, whether or not that is the correct way to handle this, I think is something very questionable. Um, yes, I mean there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I mean in in terms of judicial review i'm not sure that it's so much of an issue in a in a time where we have a massive majority in parliament for the government because ultimately anything the uh, uh, court decides the government can then pass a law to uh, make legal or or to or to, uh, to to change it's not like we have a constitution that we're battling against because every single piece of legislation is, is part of our constitutional fabric so in terms of judicial review i think that that's only really a, a proper question in these times when it comes to uh, minority governments or governments that are, are reigning against the the will of the house of commons um but when it comes to Shemima and coming back here and going to prison i think in so many ways prison is exactly what she was looking for in um in going out and, and living in isis i mean living as a woman in that state you you are basically imprisoned um at your husband's will um in lots of prisons in this country there are sort of work programs where she might be able to sew some vests i mean it really how different would it be to her life come on Tom. out in come syria on. come on Tom. <laughs> You, we obviously know prison's not prison's not the same. Prison, I mean, you, you can make an argument say prison's too lovely and that you know there's, there's no situation that she deserves to be in, but it's not quite the same. No, I mean, as, I'm, uh, I'm being I'm being contrite, but I, I mean, it, it is it is worth noting that her life as a woman in the Islamic State, how different is that from um, an average prisoner living in a UK prison? Probably not all that different. I read in the paper today that in uh, in uh, Britain's best prison you can get uh, tea, uh, toast and jam. On I read I read that same article, but apparently it reduced the level of violence in the prison. So all you, all you, all, all you need to do to make me happy is is give me a bit of toast and jam, perhaps.
I think there's always, there's, there's always been a tension between judges and politicians, and that's probably it's absolutely right that that there that there should be. And what I think we've seen more and more, of course, is that you know we now have such a spaghetti of laws that judges can always find some good reason as to as to strike down a piece of legislation and say this is illegal because you haven't consulted the public or you haven't done something else. Um, so that is is a problem. And if these things go up to the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court basically sat in the House of Lords, at least there was some political reality to it and some political control of it. But uh, now it sits on its own. There isn't. And I think that you actually need some some way of controlling that, some way of choosing your most senior judges uh, that is open and transparent and, and that, that, that they're not just pursuing their own agenda and that they can actually be uh, made accountable for, for their decisions. Which the Yeah, I find this conflict very hard because in one sense you don't want the highly politicized judiciary that you have in the US where every judge has a known ideological standpoint, although recent decisions from the Supreme Court in the US aside, which showed some uh, surprises, perhaps in some of the conservative justices on certain issues, uh, that level of which it all becomes about what the judiciary is deciding and then who is on the judiciary. You do want as many issues in the political realm as possible, mm. but at the same time you want the executive to be held account when they are breaking the letters of the law and they're not following what parliament has told them to do. Well, I think I, I, I just find it very, very odd when this country tries to chase after American institutions all the time. Um, the Supreme Court seems to have been, I mean, it was only um, instituted in, I think, 2007 in this country. I mean, so often in these debates, people act as if it's been there since time immemorial, and that's just simply not true. I think it is worrying that we don't know the people who sit on the Supreme Court, who, who carry so much power and at times of um, incredible constitutional wrangling um these names come to the fore and i think that's unhealthy uh when it uh, when it comes to democracy but again when it comes to judicially reviewing uh decisions of british governments because the legislature and the government are by definition um as one um it really shouldn't be a problem because you don't have anything to run up against because you can just change the law. It's only a problem when there is a minority government, and that is thankfully very rare. That's why it's a bad thing, because uh, the executive should be held to account by parliament. And it isn't because uh, 100 members of parliament are members of the government. 100 members of parliament are members of the opposition uh, shadow ministers and all the rest of it. And then uh, there's another 200 who'd love to be uh, in the same boat. So you've got most of the House of Commons is just desperate to get a job rather than to represent the public and to restrain the executive. The last thing they want to do is to restrain the executive. So there's only a few uh, rather noble MPs who are actually uh, preserving our liberty here. And I think they're probably better at doing it than any Supreme Court or any bunch of judges. Do you still get that feeling, Tom, from the MPs that most of them will be too gutless to, to challenge the government? Yeah, I think that that's uh, one of the fundamental problems, actually, with the British system. If we if we go back to the way that it was, that it evolved from the sort of 
Glorious Revolution onwards, it was, of course, the executive was the monarchy and you had a separation of powers that um, that was actually what the Americans based their system off was our uh, wonderful separation of powers between uh, the monarchy and the parliament. And of course, those fused over time and you sort of lost that accountability mechanism whereby the uh, whereby the executive is of the legislature. And that, and that is often um, a problem because ultimately you don't have that same level of scrutiny. However, what you do have in this country is a really robust media. Um, we also have the revising chamber of the House of Lords, I think is not a is not a thoroughly bad thing. Um, there are lots of avenues by, by which even a government with a majority of say 80 uh, has to be accountable on and has I mean if we just look at the number of times this government for example has U-turned on decisions over the last six months it does seem that there is an element of accountability there and it's not the sort of um, elective dictatorship that so often is taught in in, in constitutional classes. That's just populism. That's not uh, representative government. I mean, there are there are a few recent examples, of course, where the government has clearly lost out to Parliament in terms of Chris Grayling was the pick for the Intelligence Committee chair, wasn't successful. Uh, Jeremy Hunt's been holding the government to account from a, from the health committee perspective on, on its COVID mm. response. And, and this is actually really important. I think the, the innovation of the last 20 years or so of making um, select committee chairs uh, be, be elected by the whole house, um, be, uh, allowing that uh, other career path for MPs so that the only thing if you're an MP it used to be the case where okay the only way to advance in your career was to go off and become a cabinet minister well actually there's actually there's a very noble career path now where people can go off and be very um, respected and powerful select committee chair people and and that F- feed their actually, ego as politicians at least perhaps. right exactly <laughs> which is what politicians want to do and so if we're able to empower select committees more that is actually a very useful um, counterbalancing mechanism that I think um, is, is something that we should build on. I think there's a very noble profession to be had in going home and not bothering us with laws and legislation and committees and goodness knows what. Well, on that note, I think we're, we're probably running out of time, but it's been a fantastic chat. Uh, thank you very much, Tom Howard from, from Guido Fawkes, as well as our director, Eamon Butler. Um, my name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. And also a special thanks to Daniel Pryor, who produced this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>